Okay, so I- I'm not going to do the sort of formal introduction. Yeah, how are you doing this rapper thing? Does it need a rapper? I mean... I think it needs some kind of introduction, because otherwise it just starts with me saying, I'm, I'm pleased to be joined by Keith Cotto. So, oh. <laughs> well, I, how, about, how about I do the standard introduction then? Okay. Okay. So, welcome everybody to a special episode of Take Me to Your Reader. No, see, that it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a special episode. It's a regular episode. This is a regular episode. The next one is not a regular episode. Yeah. So, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing an intro for the next episode. Which is a special episode. Right. Because it's an interview. It's the Pavement right. Pounders interview, uh, episode one. Right. <laughs> which we, we hope to do more in the future. Let me prototype it for you, right? So you're going to you're gonna do the, you know, greetings everybody and welcome back to a podcast from the Pavement Pounders. I'm Seth, I'm, I'm James, I'm Colin. And then one of us who isn't you should pick it up and say, hey, this next podcast is going to have a lot of Seth because he's conducting an interview of Keith Cotto from the Highland Society. And we had this idea of interviewing him because we recently reviewed uh, Starship Troopers, the book and the movie. And Keith was kind enough to spend over an hour of time with Seth talking about not only uh, that book and movie, but a lot of other things about Highland that we'd never known. And uh, we think you're going to enjoy what you're hearing. I think we're wrapped. You got it. That's it. <laughs> but you should do it. Colin, you just, I, I suckered you into doing the introduction for me. So thank you, Colin. How, that was great. This is how it works. This was my nefarious plan all along. <laughs> okay. So we hope that, yes, you enjoy the interview and we thank Colin for introducing it for you. So it is my distinct pleasure to be joined by Keith Cotto, president of the Heinlein Society. Keith, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for your invitation to be on the podcast. Why don't we just start off uh, talking about you a little bit. Um, tell me about yourself. What's your background? All right. I was a physics major as an undergraduate at UCLA and uh, later as a graduate student at the University of California, Irvine. And once you pass your qualifying exams, you begin your research. My dissertation advisor was the famous science fiction writer Gregory Benford. He was a professor of physics at UCI and who also, of course, writes SF. Wow. Our student-professor meetings would be odd at times. I mean, uh, we'd speak half of the time on SF and gossipy things and the other stuff on that science. And uh, so as it turned out, my thesis topic was on uh, radiation and plasma processes. And uh, in doing my experiments, I learned what is now called the gigawatt class of electrical pulse power, which was the ideal credential to begin work at uh, General Dynamics, which was later bought by Hughes, which was later bought by Raytheon. And most of my job was on microwave-directed energy. So that's my professional background. Uh, personal background, I've been an SF leader for my entire life. Uh, I read my first Heinlein in 1911 or so. And it was not, not a Heinlein juvenile. It was a stranger in a strange land, which is quite a shock for an 11-year-old, right? Yeah. Um, also a lifelong martial artist. I've been doing judo and karate since 1965. So that's that's me. So um, are you telling me that you are secretly working on ray guns in your professional life? Directed energy? Well, I'm retired. No, I'm retired now. Uh, We used to work on ray guns. And of course, when I left, because of my clearance, I've had an official lobotomy. Oh, okay. What I do and do not know. (laughs) The, the, The little flashy thing from Men in Black? Not quite, but uh, actually, one thing I can talk about, there is a 60 Minutes today, 
a story a few years ago on something called active denial, which is the microwave pain ray. Ooh. And my group built that. Wow. Uh, I, I had less to do with it. I, my job there was microwave sources, so I had a little bit to do with it, but not much. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things that is fairly well known out of my group. Wow. Well, it sounds like your, your job is uh, cooler than mine. <laughs> a lot of science is really boring. Yeah, yeah. So how did you become involved with the Heinlein Society? Well, Bill Patterson, who was the official Heinlein biographer, uh, and I met in 1972 at the Western Regional Science Fiction Convention called WesterCon, which is traditionally held on the 4th of July. It was in Long Beach of that year, and um, Bill was part of Phoenix fandom at that time, and so we struck up an immediate friendship because of Heinlein. Hmm. And over the years, we'd see each other from time to time. Bill's day job was actually as a legal secretary. One of his bosses was the uh, famous Melvin Belli, San Francisco. But uh, in the 1998 WesterCon in San Diego, Bill announced the formation of the Heinlein Society, which did not actually incorporate until about November of 2000. Bill was the first president of the society. Jeannie Heinlein was a member of the board of directors. And very early on, I was a charter member. I was asked to be the chairman of what they call the Social Activities Committee, which means the guy running the parties. Nice. Now, I have a background in SF for 40 years of what is called the Keith Cotto Chili Party. <laughs> and there's a, a link I could tell you about on the family file 770 that lists the history of the first 35 years of it. But uh, anyway, I hung around, did grunt tasks as a committee member. I ran for the board finally in 2009, and uh, was elected to the board. And in in the from 2010 to 2014, I was the vice president dash secretary of the society. In September of last year, I was uh, selected to be the fourth president, and that's how I happen to be with THS, as we call it. Nice. Well, how about you tell me a little bit about the society itself, um, the missions, methods. You you already mentioned some of the history. Yes. Well, the Heinlein Society is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation that engages in charitable and educational functions for uh, the kind of vision that Robert Heinlein had. The Heinlein blood drives actually began in 1976 by the man himself uh, who gave out blood donor pins of his own design uh, and autographs, things like that. Uh, the blood pins, the design is uh, now... Uh, part of uh, THS's activities are our blood drive that we do. Hmm. So in the past 15 years, we've been coordinating Heinlein blood drives, uh, mostly at science fiction conventions around the country. And to date, we've collected over 23,000 units of blood. Wow. We also, you know, quite, quite cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have a, an educational CD we provide without charge to middle school and high school teachers and librarians on SF. We have... Uh, on the disc, we have donated stories by the Killer Bees, the Craig Benford, Greg Bear, David Brin triumvirate, plus lesson plans and exams, things like that. Uh, we also have a Heinlein for Heroes program, which gathers paperbacks and hardbacks, not just of Heinlein, but other Golden Age authors. We send the paperbacks to troops in theater, and we send the hardbacks to VA hospitals. We have uh, two STEM major undergraduate scholarships, and the most recent winners were announced on Heinlein's birthday 
July 7th of this year. They were Elias Anderson of St. Vincent College in Pennsylvania and Timothy Brown of the University of Alabama. Uh, we also support the manufacture of the Heinlein Award given each year at Balticon. Uh, we offer the Bill Patterson Prize for Best Heinlein-Related Academic Paper. And we also help publish the Heinlein Journal, although uh, since Bill Patterson died last year, his, uh, that's sort of in hiatus at the moment because Bill was the editor. Um, we have most recently uh, done a fundraising campaign to create a Heinlein exhibit for the Missouri Hall of House of Representatives Hall of Famous Missourians, we just finished that fundraising last, uh, actually two months ago, and they initiated the purchase order for the exhibit, the bust, and the pedestal just this week. I'd like to give a special shout out to, to two people who donated. Uh, the largest private donor was Jeb Kinnison, a science fiction writer who says that as a young boy in Kansas City who was fatherless, Heinlein helped him pull through, and <laughs> Jeb went on to, to, to fund his way through MIT and, and had a career in science, and he also does SF. The other, of course, is the Heinlein Price Trust, which is different from the society. The trust is actually a holder of the uh, estate of Robert Heinlein, so they matched one for one, dollar for dollar, every donation. So those two people were the major donors that we have accumulated slightly over $14,000, which should be sufficient for the exhibit. The timing now allows us to, we're hoping, um, to unveil the exhibit at the 2016 Worldcon in Kansas City, which was where the 2007 Heinlein Centennial was held. Hmm. And so uh, we're hoping to unveil it at the 2016 Worldcon, and then since Jefferson City, the capital, is only 160 miles away, we're going to schlep it there, and a number of the Heinlein people, and presumably anybody at the Wolcom wants to attend, uh, will go to the induction ceremony immediately thereafter. So that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, the trust and the society are two different organizations. The society actually uh, came into existence first. Uh, Robert Heinlein died in 1988, and Ginny died in 2003. But as I said, Ginny helped set up the Heinlein Society before her death, as part of the board of directors. And I believe she prearranged the existence of the trust, so upon her death, the trust would take over the Heinlein estate. So okay. that, in a nutshell, is what we do, that's, who we are. That's quite a lot, really. Um, I, just looking around on the website, I, I have been kind of overwhelmed by the amount of material there. I, I wanted to kind of read through everything and, and craft some questions from it, but I, I quickly uh, kind of drowned in all the information. Yes, I, it's, every now and then we should sort of cleanse and, and prune up the thing, but, uh, you know, we, we just don't quite get to it. But, yeah, I understand. I I have yet to read the entire website myself. All right, then I don't feel so bad. <laughs> so can you tell me about the Heinlein Prize? Well, there are a number of different prizes uh, named after Robert Heinlein, and uh, one of them is by the trust itself. And... It is a $500,000 prize given out for progress in commercial space activities. The trust also has what's called a Heinlein Award for smaller technical accomplishments in, in the field of space. The National Space Society has the Heinlein Memorial Award 
for individuals who have made significant lifetime contributions to the creation of a free space-faring civilization. The Baltimore Science Fiction Society has a Heinlein Award, uh, toward which the Heinlein Society provides half the cost of striking the medallions. Uh, for outstanding published works in science fiction and technical writings to inspire the human exploration of space. Uh, this a Baltimore Science Fiction Award is awarded at Baltimore Memorial Day weekend every year, and it was founded by Dr. Yogi Kondo and Dr. Charles Sheffield, who are both SF writers as well, space scientists. Um, the, uh, those, are, those are three that I'm most aware of, but the four that I'm most aware of. There are other prizes, and of course, there are things like uh, there are craters named after Heinlein, there's asteroids named after him. Heinz Society just recently filed a petition to name a star and, and its planets. The, uh, the star is Robert Heinlein, and the, uh, the planets are named after Heinlein characters like Jubal Harshaw and Pixel and things like that. So um, those, are the, those are the prizes that I'm aware of, and as I said, there may be more, but I, I think uh, he'd be pleased because you know he, he was a great advocate for space, mm-hmm. and so uh, the majority of these prizes are for space activities, and uh, we shall see what happens in the future, but um, yeah. as I said, those, those, are the, those, those are the ones I'm aware of. Okay, so moving on, um, a little more kind of background on you, I guess. Um, you mentioned that you were a Heinlein fan from a pretty young age, and so I was wondering if you wanted to give some recommendations, a good place to start for people who have not read much Heinlein? There are, of course, four Heinlein novels that won the Hugo. One was Double Star, Starship Troopers, Stranger in a Strange Land, and The Moon is Harsh Mistress. And a lot of my deep thinker types and feel that Luna's Harsh Mistress is the best of those four. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the juveniles, my favorite, personal favorite, is Starman Jones, which actually is based on a real story, apparently, of a young cabin boy who leaves on a British sailing ship and comes back as captain. Hmm. And uh, it, it, uh, the other juvenile I, I have fond of for is Have Spacesuit Will Travel. I love the title of that one. Um, yes. Uh, if you have young readers, I've actually found that I gave to my very smart 11-year-old nephew the following collections. One is called Four Frontiers, and that has Rocket Ship Galileo, Space Cadet, Red Planet, and Farmer in the Sky in its collection. The second volume is Two of the Stars, which has Between Planets, The Rolling Stones, Starman Jones, and The Star Beast. The third collection is called Infinite Possibilities, that has Tunnel in the Sky, Time for the Stars, and Citizen of the Galaxy, and the final collection called Outward Bound, which have, have space and will travel, Starship Troopers, and Popkin of Mars, although I cannot say those latter two are truly juveniles, but those are four collections of all the Heinlein juveniles, and, and as I said, if you have a smart teenager, a little bit, those would be great to start with. Yeah. Uh, I, I personally have uh, soft spots for the door to summer, especially now when you see some of the gadgets that come out, like the Roomba. Uh, the number of the beast I thought was just brilliant. Though the comedy of justice, which I thought was a very deeply philosophical uh, story, and uh, the short stories, Magic Incorporated, and The Man Who Traveled an Elephant. Hmm. And Magic Incorporated is something, if, if the Spirit Brothers who did Predestination want more material, I, I think Magic Incorporated would be a wonderful movie because it's actually relatively short to adapt, has lots of visuals, and 
you know, is a quite interesting, uh, different take on fantasy. Hmm. So I don't know if I have a recommendation there, but, you know, as I said, that's a quick lesson. There are 46 volumes of short stories and novels to choose from if you really want to. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I will um, kind of promote that, that list to our listeners. I'll maybe put a document in our in our show notes for the podcast, because um, I think okay. that's that's some good stuff. Well, I was going to suggest uh, for your later show on Starship Troopers, uh, volume three of the Virginia edition is Starship Troopers with, with the annotated commentary. And of course, if you can lay hands on the Expanded Universe book, he lists later in books some commentary about the generation of Starship Troopers itself. And Heinlein very rarely commented on his own work until rather late in life. But mm. especially in the expanded universe, uh, Starship Troopers is sort of, he was actually writing Stranger in a Strange Land when some events in the late 1950s occurred. And he put Stranger on hold to write Starship Troopers. So, um, I noticed I, I am a, a Nook owner, the Barnes & Noble Nook for eBooks, And I think maybe in the last couple of weeks, I saw volume two of Expanded Universe on sale for just a couple bucks. And I was thinking of picking it up, um, hoping that there would be something in there about Starship Troopers. But I'm not sure if it's in volume one or volume two. Oh, I was, the, the, the volume I'm aware of is just one book. Yeah. I didn't realize it. But. Yeah, they've they've broken it up for e-publishing, I guess, which is completely unnecessary with with an e-book because you don't have to worry about the size of the the spine or anything like that. So, yeah, you would think. Yeah. So, uh, kind of moving along, you mentioned that you had, I think, moderated a panel talking about attenuation of influence of Heinlein or perceived attenuation of influence. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. It was at. This year's WesterCon in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, and I was asked to moderate a panel called Heinlein, Who Dat? <laughs> and uh, the premise was, uh, for example, Bill Patterson's Volume 2 of the Heinlein Biographies did not uh, make the Hugo list this year. <laughs> and that triggered the question, is Heinlein's influence waning? Now, what I pointed out was uh, according to the Heinlein Prize Trust, Robert Heinlein's royalties are still about $300,000 a year. Wow. The guy's been dead 27 years, right? And uh, I don't know if the math is correct, but if most of those are paperbacks, that, that is still about 300,000 volumes of paperbacks being sold each year. Sure. So somebody is reading him, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I said the attenuation of... of influence in the arts maybe should be expected because there's always new stuff coming in mm-hmm. and you have to make a selection what to, what to read or what to watch and things like that. I mean, the movies are quite the same thing. If you walk along Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, you see the Avenue of the Stars where there are names of people who are very famous in Hollywood, some with a living memory. And if you walk along these, uh, and look at the names with someone under 25 or 30, most of the names are entirely unknown. Mm-hmm. So that in art is not surprising. Uh, but, you know, there are still little things that pop up right now and then the show timeline is still in, in the modern consciousness. I mean, you mentioned the movie Predestination uh, a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Earlier, right, within the past year, there was a graphic novel version of Citizen of the Galaxy, the 
juvenile. Hmm. And the first run sold out entirely. So uh, I believe that was the indication of the trust that maybe maybe making graphic novels of the juveniles themselves would be quite a lucrative new market. Yeah. Uh, You know, so there's that. uh, uh, David Brin suggested that, you know, Heinlein might have uh, currency in in the gaming uh, world. Mm -hmm. No, I never thought of that before. Uh, So there are movies graphic novels, stuff like that. But even more so, there's there are a number of us who call ourselves Heinlein's children. And there are quite a few people like that popping up here and there who say their work was inspired by Heinlein. Now, don't quote the numbers exactly, but I seem to recall Bill Patterson saying that at one time in the heyday of NASA, about half, over half of the managers, over two-thirds of the engineers, were Heinlein readers. Hmm. I mean, that's quite... Start thing, and he himself said in a speech once that he thought the number of people he influenced to become scientists and engineers was his greatest contribution because he had drawers and drawers of letters from people around the world saying so. Hmm. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned a Roomba from uh, Story of the Summer. Of course, the waterbed was from Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, or interesting, there's a uh, professor of biology at University of California Irvine named Michael Rose. And he has generated cohorts of very long-lived fruit flies. He's bred 700 generations or so fruit flies, and he calls them the Methuselah flies after Methuselah's children. Oh, wow. He he himself has said that he was inspired by Methuselah's children. And so there there are a number of people still around who have Heinlein as their example. I mean, I personally, uh, when I, in my acknowledgement section, my dissertation, I, I cited Robert Heinlein is one of my influences, and I sent him that page, and he very wrote back, but he sent me a note saying, Keith, thank you, I'm flattered and honored. Okay. So, as I said, he was, he was quite influential, and still is quite influential, and whether that or not manifests itself in the SF world is quite a different matter. Sure. So, you mentioned um, in our correspondence that with um, e-books, that it's, it's hard well, not hard, but some of the publishing companies haven't been producing Heinlein works in e-format. Well, that's my, that's my impression. I mean, I don't, since I have paper copies, I don't buy replacement e-books. But sure. there are different publishers who hold the rights, e-book publishing rights, and they release the e-books when, when or if they feel the market bears. Yeah. It. And so some titles are covered, some are not. Uh, but there's no comprehensive plan, per se, because, uh, for example, the Heinlein Prize Trust does not have the rights to publication for all the works. So that is a little bit of a problem. Uh, at past Worldcons, I have heard fans from, uh, say, Japan and Norway saying that uh, they cannot get Heinlein in translation, especially in ebook form. And, you know, that's, that's a situation I passed along to the trust. I I uh, I don't know what what the plans would be, but yes, I mean you'd think if putting books in ebook format since it, it takes up relatively little capital once it's done, zero storage, right? Right, would be something that uh, that would be done. It's it's just is not. Yeah, it's not 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 to the degree that that I have observed. Sure, and as as an e-reader myself, you know I I've been reading in that format long enough that that I I really like to do that. And so I'd love to be able to find a lot of these books in e-format if I could, um, because it would just be convenient for me. 
Well, yes, I, I, I would agree that uh, transferring to that format uh, would be desirable to inculcate new readers. Mm-hmm. You had you had mentioned um, kind of piracy and illegal copies, you know, scanned copies, that kind of stuff on the internet. Um, because I know when we were looking for All You Zombies, when we were covering Predestination, I think somewhere online there was an e version of it, um, but we didn't feel like that was a legitimate copy, and so we went to our library and, and found uh, an anthology that had the story in it. Um, but you want to talk about, you know, the the actual damage done by that kind of thing? Well, of course, when there's a market to be uh, exists and is unfilled, somebody will fill it, and, and that's the situation you see of piracy. Mm-hmm. Every time uh, the Highland Society encounters uh, an instance of where we think piracy has occurred, we pass the information along to the uh, trust. Mm. Uh, Heinlein still has a, a literary editor named Eleanor Wood in New York, and so we, we usually pass the information along to her. Uh, we have had some instance in the past of overt piracy in printed form. Ginny Heinlein had discovered a, a company that w- was publishing books and such of Heinlein material that was not approved, so she sued them and got custody of the material, and uh, she gave them to the Heinlein Society for fundraising, so we call that the pirate's booty. It includes <laughs> things like the notebooks of Nat Lazarus Long, if it is a small uh, separate volume, things like that. So we have them on, I think there's a link on our website for people who uh, would wish to buy them. They are for some reason, so they're not going to be, you know, these $8 a volume that you see in bookstores. They're going to be a little bit more, but uh, we have we have seen that uh, both electronically and in print. And of course, what happens is, despite Heinlein still drawing that amount of royalty per year and the trust managing that money, the trust controls big projects too, like mm-hmm. movies and things like that. And so, if there's less money flowing in to them, they would uh, have less money to handle these bigger projects that we hope would be coming. Yeah. The, uh, you mentioned predestination. In in early January of this year, there was a um, science fiction magazine called Galaxy's Edge that's edited by Michael Resnick. And the, the January 2015 copy uh, was actually handed to me by the publisher at this movie predest- uh, preview of Predestination. It has the, the, the story in it, mm. as well as a uh, an interview of the Spirit Brothers by Joy Ward. Now, and that must have been available, you know, or the, the trust must have released the rights for this publication here, so I, I would guess something like that is forthcoming. I might mention that uh, Predestination, we've arranged for it to be shown at this year's Worldcon in Spokane, and their film festival, it's the, it'll be noon on Saturday, and I am supposed to introduce it, and then uh, Mike Sheffield, uh, my predecessor as president of the Heinlein Society, SF author Steve Barnes and I will be doing a Q&A afterwards. And we're trying to prepare a little mental book that has things like um, the production note uh, of the movie generated by the Spirit Brothers, uh, Joy Ward's Q- um, interview, the uh, reviews by Times and Variety and, and little things like that. So hmm. I just wanted to plug that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have seen uh, all these zombies again as as late as January of this year hmm. in publication. Well, since you mentioned predestination, I wanted to to follow up on that. You had mentioned that you had gotten to see a special preview 
showing of it at, at one of the conventions, I'm assuming. And that, you know, that was one of those, since we're talking about Starship Troopers this time, and I had, I had previously read Starship Troopers and seen the movie, you know, I know what a lousy adaptation of a book looks like. And I really appreciate it, and we all did, um, how faithful predestination was, and yet adding some kind of novel content to it to fill it out. Do um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. The preview, the LA preview of predestination occurred the, uh, the Thursday just before its commercial release on Friday, and it occurred the Thursday before the Golden Globe Awards. So it just so happened that not only were the Spirit Brothers in town because they live in Brisbane, Australia, hmm. uh, they also had Ethan Hawke there because I think uh, Ethan Hawke's movie won, uh, and and then uh, Sarah Snook was also in town too. So they had this preview of the movie uh, the day before when the commercial release, and then they had a panel afterwards. They had uh, the, the film critic of Variety magazine there, and then they had Ethan Hawke, Sarah Snook, and Michael and Peter Spearig, and they they answered questions from the audience about the the movie. And uh, I hear what you say about Starship Troopers. I mean, there's an entirely different story mm-hmm. I have about that. But uh, Predestination was uh, very, very faithful to the original. And in fact, the, the things you cite uh, were, were done, the brothers said, because the story itself was very short. Mm-hmm. And the movie was 97 minutes, so they had to expand it a little bit. And so in the story, there is a, a throwaway line at the end about why the Fizzle War of 1963 fizzled. Mm-hmm. And they took that as a concept to expand upon it on, on the Fizzle Bomber storyline within the movie. Right. right? They, they also added, I think the character's name was Mr. Robinson. Uh, Noah Taylor played this character, who was entirely uh, not in the original story, but they had, had to add him mm. to sort of cohesiveness of the, of the storyline. But, they, they, but several instances in the movie are, in fact, lifted directly from the novel, whole lines of dialogue, uh, settings, things like that. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there there are some little hat tips within the movie. The first was, you remember when baby Jane is left at the uh, orphanage, Mm -hmm. the matron who picks her up looks like young Ginny Heinlein, right? Oh, wow. uh, Oh, yes, yes. The, uh, a later, in the later scene when uh, uh, Jane is undergoing the physical for Space Corps, the doctor who examines her looks like Robert Heinlein. Hmm. In, the, in the closing credits, you see this character is actually named Dr. Heinlein. Uh, later on in the story, when you see Jane doing typing, there was a copy of Stranger in a Strange Land on the desk. Right, that, that's one and, we did actually notice. Okay, and, and still later on in the um, antique store, the, the lady clerk is carrying a copy of The Moon of the Harsh Mistress, right? Hmm. So all of those things were in the movie, and afterwards I, I talked to one of the brothers, and they said, of course, that was intentional. And yeah. They're quite aware of what they're doing. <laughs> but uh, ex- except for the expansion, as I said, that this, it was quite uh, faithful to the original story, and it turns out Michael and Peter Spierig are Heinlein readers mm-hmm. and fans. In fact, uh, they've joined the Heinlein Society. Oh, nice. And they have provided us with six autographed posters uh, from Destination. And so we're trying to figure out how to how to sell them. You know, I'm going to take them to Worldcon this year and mm-hmm. offer them up a bid. But uh, they are available, and uh, 
they did say that there's a lot of material in the Heinlein canon that they would be interested in. It's just that uh, their past, they've done, I think, one zombie movie, one vampire movie, one SF movie, Predestination. Now they're working on something else. I don't quite know. Uh, they did say that they would love to, to adapt Stranger to Strange Land to a movie, but that it's a very difficult thing to do. That, you know, it's, it's not only as long, it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I suggested that they may want to do a closed and episodic TV series because the cable networks like HBO and Stars uh, can have quite a bit of latitude on the content and what they can do. Right. And maybe that would be a better format for them. But, you know, that's, that's a TBD. I mean, I've yeah. heard stories in the past that uh, uh, David Bowie at one time had, had uh, re- you know, requested rights and hmm. had, had Tom Hanks for Stranger, and, and of course nothing has ever come of it. Yeah. Well, the, the like you said, the uh, limited series is something that, that seems to be happening more um, these days. I, I think there's one going on for A Man in the High Castle from Philip K. Dick, and um, I think uh, Childhood's End from Arthur C. Clarke is coming uh, later this year. So I, I think that's oh, really? there's there's some momentum behind that format, I think, especially now that you can watch things online, um, kind yeah. of on, on demand. So so yeah, I'd love to see more, more Heinlein than that way. And by the Spearing Brothers, because I, I thought that Predestination was tremendous. It was beautifully filmed. Right. Uh, I got the impression before I heard them speak that they got the material in the same way Peter Jackson gets Lord of the Rings. Sure. You know, and of course they had to make some accommodation because the um, uh, the printed uh, story is different from the film. But nevertheless, yes, I thought they did a, a very credible job. And one of the reviews I read said that. They, they would like to see what the brothers could do when they have a real budget. Right, yeah. We were curious about what the budget for Predestination was because it looked really good. Right. Well, it, it was made in Australia, of course. Mm-hmm. And as, as I recall, the Australian government did subsidize part of the cost. Okay. Now, for some reason or other, the, the number 7 million sticks in my mind, although I cannot, you know, be sworn under oath that that is correct. Sure. But, but that's a very modest budget, right? And 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 yet, you know, if you if you remember the time jump sequences, they are not very elaborate, right? But they're very effective, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, maybe having to work with less resources is more helpful to the um, to the process because now you have to be very ingenious, not to depend on the number of computers crunching out CGI. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, I was, I was I was very pleased with how it turned out, although. I told by the people who were with me at night who were not timeline readers, you have to wait the story out, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and in the in the uh, panel afterwards, Ethan Hawke was saying it, it took him three viewings to figure out what was happening. Wow! And yeah, uh, he also said that uh, the uh, the brothers said they did not prepare a script for auditions; they sent out the story itself. And Ethan Hawke is. Uh, Said, he said to himself, well, what part am I being asked to play, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I think, I, I don't know what you, you guys thought, but I, I thought that Sarah Snook was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, she was. Movie. And, and uh, she, was, she was in the panel, and uh, first of all, they had to kind of rough, rough up her look for the movie, because in person, she's really quite cute. Yeah. yeah. But uh, she said um, she originally thought playing girl would be easier because she's a girl and right. it turned out uh, playing the female part in that movie was 
more difficult for her. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, see, I think Ethan Hawke was on the said uh, upon multiple viewings, he realized there's sort of a figure eight structure to the to the story, where the the penultimate scene halfway through is uh, is an act of love, and the ultimate scene at the end of the movie is an act of hate. Hmm. You know, and it's yeah. an interesting argument to make, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, as I said, I was I was uh, pleased by how it turned out. It uh, there's actually a little bit of uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but it opened in Australia in 2014, and by the rules of the Hugo Award, the uh, the date of eligibility depends on its first release in, in an English-speaking country, which they do speak in Australia, right? Yeah. The first commercial release in the United States was early January 9, mm-hmm. 2015. So uh, it, a, a couple of us nominated it for this year's Hugo, and it, it didn't make the ballot, but I understand at the business meeting at this year's Worldcon, there's going to be a decision made whether to allow its candidacy to extend it to next year. Hmm. Now, yeah, the problem with that, of course, it's it, next year it'll say Jurassic World, uh, Mad Max, Star Wars. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. <laughs> it's not exactly a, an easiest field to be in, but nevertheless, you know. Yeah, kind of a crowded ballot. Right, right. But um, no, so, so all along, yes, I was, I was very pleased, and as I said, uh, Predestination will be shown at this year's Worldcon as well, with with some goodies that we can we can uh, give out later. And you said that was in Spokane. <laughs> yes. Okay. We're we're in Oregon, so yeah, that's not that far away. Oh, well, um, I think the website for the Worldcon is safquan.org. S A F Q U A N, safquan.org. Okay. And uh, the Highline Society will have an information table there. Uh, as I said, this predestination will be shown Saturday at noon in the film festival, followed by Q and A. And uh, as part of our outreach, um, I believe the Highland Society's party is scheduled for Thursday night of the Worldcon. So, you know, we're we're, we're there, and, and of course, we have a bunch of funny badge ribbons to hand out to, <laughs> to people who are interested. One is Hans Staffel, one is Igrock Heinlein. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Nice. So we will be around there. I'm kind of study we'll be around there. Well, um, so talking about film adaptations, do you know of anything that is coming out in the near future? A, sto- a movie based on The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hogue is supposed to be coming out soon. Okay. I, I do not know exactly when, but uh, I mean, you know the fantasy story. Uh, I have heard rumors and they carry only the weight of rumor, mm-hmm. which is gossip, that there there may be an adaptation, a reboot of Starship Troopers, but this time with uh, a, a much more sympathetic director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've yeah. I've heard that rumor as well. So the unpleasant profession of Jonathan Hogue, um, can you give me a couple sentence teaser for that one? Well, that's hard without being a spoiler alert, but basically Jonathan Hogue realizes that he does not know what he does for a living. He's at a dinner party. He sees his, his fingernails have this grime underneath that he does not know what it is, and he does not know what he, what he does. Hmm. And the story is an, is an evolution of him discovering what his role is hmm. in this world. But uh, the resolution of the story is quite interesting because it is a precursor to other themes that Heinlein uses much later 
in his career. Um, so I guess that's all you can say without giving it away. Sure. Yeah, and we don't we don't want to spoil it, but I, I might have to give that one a look. It sounds interesting. Uh, as I said, it's in the same collection of short stories as All You Zombies, and, and the short story collection is actually called The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hoag. Um, one of the things that when we were emailing back and forth, I, I made the evident faux pas of using the term sci-fi, and you gave me some kind correction on that topic. So maybe you could educate our listeners on proper labels for SF, as you put okay. it. Okay, sure. The, um, the Originally, the term sci-fi coined, I believe, by Force J. Ackerman, who owned the largest personal collection of, of SF in the world, and he was editor of the famous Monsters of uh, Movies, that I think it was the title. And Forey was a notorious punster and, and, and such, and so at the time sci-fi was first enunciated, there was a musical system called High Fidelity, and, and that became known as Hi-Fi, mm-hmm. and so it was sort of a riff on Hi-Fi. Okay. Uh, what I found out is that the authors in particular do not like the term sci-fi because it, it trivializes their work. It sounds like it trivializes their work. And worse, there is a sci-fi collection in most bookstores that are separate from real literature, right. and they don't quite like that. Uh, also, as a, as a marketing uh, label, books marked sci-fi are not do not stay on the shelves for that long. Hmm. In fact, uh, what happens is if the books outlive their shelf lifetime, whatever that is determined to be, the, uh, the store owners tear off the front covers of the paperbacks and send the front covers back to the publishers for rebate credit, hmm. and they're supposed to burn the rest. And so that's why you see uh, the uh, caution at, at when used books be sold, that if the covers are not on it, these are, these are stolen books, basically. Right. Yeah, I've seen that so, before. Right, so these are these are the reasons the authors don't like uh, the term itself. And in a speech many many years ago, Heinlein said he preferred the term speculative fiction because that encompasses fantasy and science fiction and almost anything else that's not you know uh, everyday world kind of literature. Now I should mention this within the uh, field, it is allowable to say this term under two conditions. The first is where if you pronounce it skiffy. <laughs> and that indicates you know that you're not supposed to say it uh, for real. The other is you take sci-fi with a very sarcastic tone, and that's designated for really bad SF. Okay. Now, to show you how how uh, how much this, the fans are cognizant of this, uh, the producer of the movie The Empire Strikes Back, Gary Kurtz, came up. Uh, one Hugo ceremony to to take the best dramatic presentation Hugo, and he he used the term sci-fi, and the fans booed him off the stage. Wow! <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so if the producer of Star Wars gets booed off the stage for using this term, you, you got to realize it's not quite uh, acceptable. Now, it, it may be irretrievable. Right? Yeah. It's the Sci-Fi Channel, and and people use it quite often, and mm-hmm. uh, but but. That is the origin of the sort of the antagonism within the field to that term. Sure. I remember a famous uh, Harlan Ellison rant on the Sci-Fi Vortex show on Sci-Fi.com um, about, about science fiction and sci-fi and, and how, how much he hated that. Um, and I think I yeah. recently, we, we covered iRobot um, in our last episode, and I had found a YouTube video of a kind of a panel discussion 
roundtable discussion with Harlan Ellison and Isaac Asimov and Gene Wolfe um, talking about that as well and, and how, how it kind of marginalized what they did. Yeah. You know, Harlan actually wrote a script to iRobot that was never used for not right. the Will Smith movie, but, True. but it was the one that Asimov liked the best. Yeah, we actually we we all read that in preparation for for our our podcast, and we all liked the wow. movie, the the Will Smith movie. But it's just it's um, as you would put it, sci-fi, you know, um, <laughs> where it's enjoyable for what it is, entertaining and stuff. But as as an adaptation of iRobot, it 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 just isn't. But but we all loved the Harlan Ellison screenplay. I, I had read it years ago, and I I told the guys, hey, when we do this, we have to read the illustrated screenplay because our library has it. Um, so, yeah. which was tremendous. Uh, there was some world con, I believe it was 1978, where Harlan actually had a midnight script reading of that particular script. Oh, wow. With a, oh, with yeah. a full yeah. cast? Oh, no, no. It was just Harlan reading his okay. own story. There was about a thousand people in the audience. But wow. Harlan uh, it was, you know, was a very good reader yes. of his own stuff. Because yeah. he knew where... The intonation should be and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, a, I think the 20th anniversary edition of Ender's Game, and he voices one of the, um, he he does one of the parts in the audio book. Yeah, it's not yeah, it's not yeah. a full cast audio, but he he voices one of the characters. Um, so it was interesting that you mentioned um, Forrest J. Ackerman uh, about the origin of the term sci-fi, because when we started doing our podcast, we were looking for materials, and we found this book on Amazon called Real Future. And it's a it's an Ackerman anthology, with um, all short stories and novellas that were turned into films or or serials and that kind of stuff. And so we've I, we've covered quite a number of titles from that. But I was not aware that that he was the one who came up with that term. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> as I said, it may be an irretrievable yes situation. But uh, as the, the people inside the field are a little touchy about that term. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I I like um, taking up the cause of the underdog, so lost causes. Yes, absolutely. So, um, kind of going back to the website uh, for for the society, um, I I was reading through the FAQs, the frequently asked questions on the site, and I love the answers, particularly the way it grouped things together. Like it would say, um, from reading Robert Heinlein, I've I, I've concluded that he's conservative or liberal or fascist or atheist or a devoted Christian. And I just think it's so, it's, I suppose it's typical for us to try to maybe bring our own ideologies into what we read and, and try to pigeonhole an author to one nice, neat label. And there, there's been some controversy with, with Heinlein's writing. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about any of that. Well, I'm not I'm not a, an academic expert. The guy who certainly answered those questions is Dr. Robert James. But uh, I understand what you're saying. I've heard I've heard this kind of um, discussion throughout the years, and my response is it is definitely true. Robert Heinlein had a personal point of view, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was meant. I most obviously was manifested in Starship Troopers, as as you know the tobacco material I alluded to earlier will attest. Um, I think, you know, he was born in 1907, and however visionary his SF point of view was, he was a man of his time, and so he wrote as a man of his time. Mm-hmm. And I have to think he was, he often said that he wrote to the, what the marketplace demanded. 
And in that sense, if you're going to create dramatic conflict, you have to have antagonists with different points of view, right? Right. And so maybe there's someone that that enunciates his own and there are others who say contrary. But uh, it, it seemed to me if you're going to read fiction that sells well, that's a necessary requirement. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I maybe part of the time, I mean, uh, there's nothing obvious to me. I got to meet the man three times. There's nothing obvious to me that indicated he had any racial animus to anybody. Right. Uh, if, if anybody thinks he, uh, he thought less of women's abilities, they never met Jenny Heinlein, who uh, was fluent in seven languages, was a champion ice skater, and was about to get her PhD in biochemistry before she married him. Hmm. Right. Well, a formidable, formidable woman, mm-hmm. but as gracious as you, you can, you, you cannot believe. Um, now, this this Western panel I alluded to a couple of weeks ago, we there actually was this comment about misogynism mm. brought by a woman in the audience, and the, the strongest defender of Robert Hunt was another woman. Mm. So it was interesting to watch them kind of discuss back and forth because uh, there were only guys on the panel, and we kind of had no dog in this fight. So you know, and I was moderate, so I just let it go. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was very interesting that. Uh, Heinlein's greatest defender would be would be a woman reader. Mm-hmm. So you can read what you want. Uh, Jerry Purnell once said, uh, Heinlein is accused of being a communist fascist and a fascist by communists. And, uh, no, I, I this by that and that by but not that. I mean, so uh, he, he had characters probably all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it was done for fun. Sometimes it was, I guess it was done overtly. Maybe some of it was done unconsciously. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, his wife said that if you look at Stranger in a Strange Land, that all the male characters have their uh, their credentials enunciated for them, and yet the female characters are like uh, you know, like Jill Boardman. Uh, she was a competent nurse, and her hobby was men. I think was an introduction to Jill, mm-hmm. and but in the same way, so she took that as sort of this. Uh, uh, you know, mindset that Robert had toward women. Well, as I said, I I can't say a lot of a lot of Heinlein stories are driven by women, mm-hmm. and uh, you know some of them are very very strong. And if you look on our website, you'll see an essay by Spider Robinson called "Raw Raw Raw," uh, and it's a, it's a defense of Heinlein against many of these kinds of accusations. So it'd be interesting if if your listeners want to. We'll hunt that down. You know, that, that's yeah. a pretty interesting declaration itself. Definitely. Well, um, I think I've come to pretty much the end of the kind of general questions. Um, but okay. before we kind of sign off on this part, um, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you, find the, the society, and um, how they can help support? All right. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. The main Heinlein website is at www.heinleinsociety.org and um, you can see how to join our, our memberships are basically $35 a month if you want to be a supporting member it's $15 a month uh, we have a bunch of different drop down tabs we have the frequently asked questions we have some questions about Heinlein both professionally and personally uh, there's a directors tab you can see who our board of directors is and uh, we try and update our main page with news as it breaks. We also have a Facebook and Twitter account that you can follow. Uh, our 
annual meeting is, is scheduled for September 12th of this year at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And it's intended to be a call-in meeting. So we have ViewGraphs, basically, that are available for download. And the board of directors will discuss the previous fiscal year and the next fiscal year. Again, the next fiscal year looks to be very exciting because that will have the Hall of Fame's Missourians uh, exhibit embedded in it. Hmm. And um, on the April, on the September 12th meeting, we hope to show the first photos of the clay bust of Ryan Culture and a time-lapse movie of its creation. So oh, neat. We hope to have that available by then. And, uh, and as I said, the... Um, uh, uh, the September 12th meeting will be the culmination of our process. We have, we have decided last year to go to an online voting system to elect the board of directors because originally we had our annual meeting at the Worldcon, hmm. and the Worldcon is now just a zoo to schedule. Sure. That, uh, you know, so, so we thought off uh, away from the Worldcon and people can call in, they don't have to go to a specific place and they can follow along online. That that'd be a better format. So uh, that has um, uh, the essential. The website has our essential material, and then there are other places if you care to donate. We do need funds, as always. We are a small nonprofit, mm-hmm. so we need uh, money for the blood drives, for Highlight for Heroes, for the scholarship fund, for um, educational CD, all that sort of stuff. All the, uh, that's almost entirely supported by member dues. So uh, I'm hoping uh, some of your listeners, or a lot of your listeners, will will come see what we're like, and if they're pleased and would like to extend Robert Heinlein's legacy, please please join us. Alrighty. Well, you know, I I really appreciate that you took the time to talk with me today. You know, I'm I'm nobody. We're we're a little podcast with with some listeners, and and we network with other science fiction podcasts, and so I I kind of hoped that we could put something out there that that other um, content creators would would appreciate and could could send along and um, get the information out there about the society and do some good. Oh, okay. Well, we certainly appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. All right. Well, I will sign off. But um, again, just Keith, thank you very much. Oh yeah, you're you're quite welcome, again. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. <laughs>